Today on the Arts Report, Vancouver history and traditional Japanese arts fused in Shadow Catch at the Fire Hall. Veteran puppeteer Ronnie Burkett brings Penny Plain to the cult. UBC directing master's students present two plays, including Faust is Dead, and the Playhouse has youngsters exploring their creativity thanks to Dare Arts. So stay with us. Hello, and welcome to the Arts Report for November the 30th, 2011. The Arts Report is your weekly fix of arts and culture news and interviews here on CITR 101.9 FM and streaming on the interweb at citr.ca right now. So go there and click Listen Live. Um, Wait, how would that work? If you're listening to the radio, then you're fine. (laughs) Anyway, my name is Adam Janusz, and... uh, Anna with one N is in the studio with me as well, and yep, we've got an exciting show for you today. We're going to tell you about a show called Shadow Catch, which is a very interesting fusion that tells uh, local history tales using techniques borrowed from uh, Japanese traditional arts, like kabuki. So that's, uh, we're going to find out how that happens. How does that work? Um, Also, um, a veteran of puppeteering, um, in in Canada, uh, with 40 years of experience, Ronnie Burkett is uh, is bringing or uh, is currently doing uh, a show called Penny Plain at the Culch. So we'll get uh, and we'll we'll get an interview with him. We have an interview with him, and we'll present it to you. Um, and also, uh, UBC Theatre um, has got two free shows going on. That's right, you heard me correctly. Free plays coming up this weekend, um, tomorrow to be precise, Thursday, and uh, one of those shows is called uh, Faust is Dead. It's a UBC uh, Master of um, Fine Arts um, program project, that's the word I'm looking for, and uh, so we'll tell you about that, and if that's not uh, if that's not enough, we'll also tell you about a very, very, very uh, wonderful and inspiring collaboration that the Playhouse is doing with an organization called Dare Arts, which is all over Canada, and it helps students, um, you know, grade school aged youngsters to explore their creativity and um, and get insights into themselves and into life, and using using the performing arts to um, draw these these great discoveries. Um, to draw them out. So we'll find out how that's happening with the Playhouse's production of uh, La Cage au Folle. So that's very cool as well. So we've got a very packed show and and I'm very pleased uh, I'm very pleased with the interviews that we have for you this week. So so not uh, there won't be a lot of uh, gabbing uh, from from us uh, before we get rolling other than to say a couple things. Uh, last week we did a fun drive show. And um, we were helping CITR to raise uh, money, which is an annual thing that CITR does, and it does it so that we do not have to have obnoxious uh, commercials on our 
airwaves to promote, you know, dishwashing liquid and crappy pop music and Christmas carols <laughs> and and Christmas carols. Uh, like what Christmas carols? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I'm just uh, very happy we are on a radio station that it's actually not not uh, playing playing Christmas music back and forth, and it's thanks to uh, the fundraising that and we do. Thanks to the fundraising that yes. keeps Christmas out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing my Christmas show in two weeks. Uh oh. Oh, Frank's doing his Christmas show in Christmas two weeks. Actually, we're doing a Christmas that's show. A, that's in a couple the thing. Weeks, yeah. It's a Christmas. But it's garage. not going to be. It's not going to be the normal Christmas songs you hear on all the other radio stations because it's going to be. I mean, we do do a Christmas show here at CITR, but it's not your typical Christmas music. That's what makes it so great. Oh, I'm quite excited, yeah. Frank. What's thanks uh... for letting me back on your show. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's what I meant. Okay, by the way, Frank was on our show last week. If you missed uh, our podcast uh, last week, definitely check it out because we, we grabbed uh, Frank from Rumbletone and uh, had him sit down on the other side of uh, the, the on-air desk here, and we got to interview him. So that was really cool, and we got to find out about sort of um, his, uh, his journeys uh, from San Diego, where, where he went to school, and how he ended up at CATR, and, and how he puts together the music that he plays every week. So if you missed that interview, check out our podcast. And that's available at citr.ca. Um, right. So fun drive. Yeah. So I just wanted to thank everyone who who donated, or anyone who just you know listened and uh, put up with the constant. Please give us a call now. Um, last week, um, we appreciate your support very much, and uh, I believe we raised somewhere around twenty five thousand dollars. Yeah. So um, so thank you to all CITR listeners for um, for your support um, because we think CITR is um, doing good things and and thanks to the twenty five plus grand CITR will get to continue to do things and I don't know if this is thanks to the fun drive or not but every microphone in the studio now has a, a sock has a wind sock. Thank you for your money. <laughs> Microphone socks. <laughs> it's just for the for those who don't know, there's usually only one, and I have to like grab it from Anna's face and put it over onto my microphone. We used to fight. For we things. used to fight for the not wind anymore. Sock. But now we don't have to. Yeah. So thank you, thank generous you. donors. All right. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention before we get rolling with the show is um, a show that I uh, a play that I saw a uh, musical I suppose called Blood Brothers. And that's happening at the Granville Island Stage, brought to you by the Arts Club. And the, the tagline for this is, The Musical for All Time. And um, it's about... Ooh, well, it's basically about uh, class, class divides in England in the, in the 50s and 60s. And it's about two, two twins um, that get separated at birth because the mother of the twins is like a housekeeper for a wealthy posh. Uh, English lady who cannot have children, so she gives one of her one of her baby twins that she cannot afford to keep because she's already got like six kids and she's living in a slum. So she gives one of her twins to this posh uh, English lady, and uh, it's basically about the lives of these these twins because, of course, as fate would have it, they would meet again. Dun dun dun. And I, I am often quite hard on the arts club, I have to say, uh, on these airwaves, uh, because I, I would want uh, a higher amount of risk-taking than I often see with those shows. With any show, I would like to always, as an audience member, I would appreciate uh, actors who really give 110% and really challenge themselves and challenge us as the audience 
in in what they do in the performances that they give us and and so that's for the actors that's for the directors the storytellers to take a lot to take some risks and go out of their comfort zone to to be bold and surprise us in in the audience and so how did the blood brothers rate on that scale fairly decently um there were some very strong uh performances and and of course the staging is beautiful as always at the arts club um I, I wasn't sh- entirely sure if the cast understood the class struggle that was at the heart of the musical. If I'm not sure if they understood what it means to be rich or what it means to be poor in England, even today, um, in the UK, let's say. Because, uh, I mean, I remember when I went to Scotland to visit some friends last year and, you know, we'd be driving around and, and my hosts, my friends would say, oh, this house, this is where a friend of mine lives or used to live and, and he did this and he did that. Oh, but, you know, he's posh. You know, and it, like, it infused uh, every conversation. It was, no- it was always noteworthy whether the person you were talking about was rich or, or poor. You know, and it's just even today in 2011, still in the UK, it's something that everyone is is aware of, and it and it means something, you know, and it's something that we in Canada and in Vancouver are, I would argue, for the most part, immune to. Um, you know, it doesn't really matter. Like when I went, where I went to high school in in Coquitlam, half the kids were from like a working class area, and the other half were from Westwood Plateau, which was this, uh, you know, on the hill suburb with where everyone had BMWs and four garages and six floors. Um, in these monster homes and never it never mattered one day you'd be at your friend's house and it would be you know this falling apart bungalow the other day you'd be up in um, a room that had like four living rooms one one living room just for show what is, what is up with that there are these houses up there and there's always a living room that no one ever goes into it's just like a museum living room anyway but it never mattered it never mattered who you were and so anyway so I'm not sure if everyone in the cast um really appreciated that uh the difference that distinction between rich and poor and uh so it kind of but it's kind of important because that's really the heart of the entire production so yeah see for yourself check it out um this is playing at the granville island stage until december the 31st there are special performances there's a thursday talk on december 1st at 8 p.m and there's a talk back tuesday happening on December the 6th at 7.30 p.m. And uh, John Mann, who is the lead singer of Spirit of the West, uh, is the narrator in this show. So that's noteworthy as well. All right, so we've got uh, a ton of show for you, and it's time to get rolling. Now, Carousel Theatre for Young People is bringing us the classic tale of a yellow brick road, a lost little girl, and her deficient but lovable friends. It's The Wizard of Oz, and it kicks off on December 2nd at the Waterfront Theatre on Granville Island. And Arts Report correspondent Nick Sartori spoke to Stephen Greenfield. He is the musical director and pianist for The Wizard. And to start the interview, here's Nick asking Stephen about being an Oz dork. Okay, so in a recent blog post... Um, you were credited as a self-proclaimed Ozdork. Tell me more about that. Um, when I was little, I'm going to say when I was probably six or seven, um, the, it was the 50th anniversary of the Wizard of Oz film. And I, I saw it. So that was 1989, so I was seven. Um, and I just fell completely in love with, with the L. Frank Baum's world 
uh, The Wizard of Oz and became pretty much obsessed for the rest of my elementary school life and uh, ate up every bit Okay, well, we seem to be having some trouble with that interview. It's uh, kind of fuzzy if you hear that, so we don't want to hurt your ears with uh, that noise. So we're going to try to uh, fix up that clip, and, um, and you can hear uh, Furious clacking on the keyboard, Anna's um, working on uh, fixing that clip for us, because we want to hear about uh, The Wizard of Oz uh, with a little bit more uh, purity, let's say. So can we take a quick commercial break, Anna? Or do you want me to just gab? Uh, I think we are ready. Oh, oh, okay, okay. That I know you work fast. Okay, so uh, here again, <laughs> that's Nick Sartori, our support correspondent, Nick Sartori, and he's talking to Stephen Greenfield, who's the musical director and pianist for The Wizard of Oz from Carousel Theater. Okay, so in a recent blog post, um, you were credited as a self-proclaimed Oz dork. Tell me more about that. Um, when I was. Little, I'm going to say when I was probably six or seven, um, the, it was the 50th anniversary of the Wizard of Oz film, and I, I saw it. So that was 1989, so I was seven. Um, and just fell completely in love with, with the, the L. Frank Baum's world of uh, the Wizard of Oz and became pretty much obsessed for the rest of my elementary school life and uh, ate up every bit of Oz trivia that I possibly could. I read all 14 of the uh, the books by L. Frank Baum. Of course, he wrote... There's, there's more Oz books that were written later by uh, by other contributors, but he, he himself wrote 14 of them, and I, I read all of them, and, and uh, yeah, just kind of lapped up all of the, the trivia about the, uh, the books and the movie uh, that I could. So what are some of the differences? Because there, I don't think people know that there's a lot of... There's a lot of nuances that are different from the books... Um, and the original book that weren't, you know, shown the same way in the in the film. So, what are some of those major differences? Uh, well, the, of course, the the major difference between uh, the the film and the books is that the books present Oz as if it uh, were a real place. Uh, there's no uh, Dorothy getting hit on the head at the beginning of the cyclone sequence. Um, there's no, you know, and you were there, and you were there, and you were there at the at the end. Uh, Dorothy uh, clicks her heels together and uh, flies back to, to Kansas and loses the, the silver slippers at some point during her flight and is found uh, you know, in the field behind the house. Hang on, silver slippers? I thought they were ruby. Yes, and that's the other uh, big famous difference uh, between, between the books and the, uh, the film is that they changed them to ruby slippers for the film. It was uh, Technicolor, of course, was, an, it was a hugely new process, um, and they wanted to for it to have the, as big an impact as possible, um, so they changed them to ruby slippers, and that was the idea of uh, the, the screenwriter, Noel Langley, to, ch- to change them to ruby slippers. Uh, also, of course, they make huge use of Technicolor in the film with the uh, sepia-toned uh, Kansas, and then, of course, the that magical moment when Dorothy opens the, the, her, her farmhouse once she's landed in Munchkinland, and we, we see the world in color for the first time. In addition to being the musical director, you also have to play all of the music, but, uh, and with all due respect, you're just one guy with one piano. So how exactly do you replicate the sound of a full-scale 40-piece orchestra just with yourself and a piano? Well, you don't. Um, yeah, we're not making any effort to, for, for one piano to sound like a, a 17-piece orchestra, which is what this was written for. Um, it, 
there's a few moments where we will uh, use some digital uh, instruments uh, being played from the piano, such as um, you know a, a trumpet fanfare for for the lion's uh, king of the forest number. Um, but for the most part, uh, we're going with just a, a traditional piano sound, mostly uh, because, in my opinion, I didn't want to um, take such a classic score that everyone's used to hearing with a, a full, beautiful orchestra and then make it sound tinny, which is uh, going to happen when you use uh, digital instruments. It, it can't be avoided, even if you're using the best, which we have an amazing digital piano that we're using for this. Um, so... For the most part, I'm just using a, um, a piano sound, and uh, which is one thing that's become really neat about it for me is that it it started to sound like it's um, a score for a silent movie. You know, when you think of those old uh, old silent movies where there was just one one pianist providing the soundtrack to it. Obviously, it isn't a silent movie. There's first of all not a movie, and also people are talking and singing. But there's still that that old timey feel of just one person providing all of the uh, the soundtrack to it, especially with this score, uh, where there is so much soundtracky bits. You know, all of those uh, f- that famous background music that everyone knows from the Wizard of Oz, uh, Miss Gulch, or the Wicked Witch, the Wicked Witch at the West's uh, theme, which everyone you know knows is is still intact. Um, the the Winkies March Yo He Ho Yo Ho is is still there. So that's another great thing about this adaptation is that not only is all are all the songs there, they also recreated all of the um, the soundtrack uh, to be played. And actually, that all of that stuff was um, all of the score, the original score from the film, was lost. Um, I don't know how if it was uh, by fire or just of, of not taking care of it, but. They, the Royal Shakespeare Company actually had to go and listen to the soundtrack of the film and then transcribe the score. And thank goodness they did, because it adds so much to the production. All right. And that is Nick Sartori speaking to Stephen Greenfield about The Wizard of Oz, which is coming to Waterfront Theatre, which is 1412 Cartwright Street uh, on Gravel Island in Vancouver. And this show begins December the 2nd, which is Friday, and runs until the 31st. And there are various times for uh, this uh, play, <laughs> musical. I always, I always say show, and I feel like I say show too much, so then I say play, but it's not always really a play. That's why show is good to say. Anyway, this uh, production, mm, performance, anyway, um, has various times. So the best thing to do is go to carouseltheater.ca and get the full scoop on the event dates and times and also about ticket uh, information, ticket uh, prices, and uh, you can purchase tickets from there as well. So go to carouseltheater.ca and uh, find out more about The Wizard of Oz. All right. So we're going to take a quick break, but we still have lots of show for you. We'll still, uh, we still want to tell you about Penny Plane, which is uh, playing right now at uh, the Colch, and uh, also the Playhouse's collaboration with Dare Arts to work with kids uh, in honor of uh, La Cage aux Folles, which is, playing, which is going to be playing at uh, the Playhouse. And uh, we'll tell you about Faust is Dead. That's a play coming here to UBC Theater. But uh, up next, we'll tell you about Shadow Catch. So stay with us. Thank you, thank you very much for coming out this evening. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Give fuck to kind. Sup, to all our CITR homies. 
we dedicate this shout-out to you for your support of our Fresh Beat. You really knew what time it was during our 2011 fun drive, and we thank you, thank you, thank you for being so kind. Big love and ups from your crew at CITR 101.9 in Vancouver. And until next year, remember to keep it real. Face keep popping up on the tube. I'm just watching Pacquiao box him up. How would I know the Biltmore Cabaret is home to great live music in Vancouver. Here's what's coming up at the Biltmore this month. November at the Biltmore is sure to banish your winter blues. November 7th, the 30th anniversary tour of Shona Knife will rock the house with the ladies of Vancouver and guests keep tidy. November 17th features a full lineup. Catch Peace, Wax Fingers, No Kind of Rider, and World Club. November 19th, enjoy the pop folk stylings of Obiju with guests Snowblink. To round out the month, November 26th brings you the alt-country sounds of the deep dark woods with the bluesy Sumner Brothers. For more information, be sure to check www.biltmorecabaret.com. This just in... Tuesday nights at 11 o'clock, CITR 101.9 FM presents Cabaradio. Join host Teddy Smooth as he explores the chimerical, the hysterical, the phantasmagorical world of burlesque and cabaret. Tuesday nights at 11 o'clock, CITR 101.9 FM brings you Cabaradio. You really want to know what love is? Yeah. Yes, tell us. More than anything in the world, Ron. Well, it's really quite simple. It's kind of like... Gonna find my baby, gonna hold her tight, gonna grab some afternoon delight. My motto's always been, when it's right, it's right. Why wait until the middle of a cold, dark night? When everything's a little clearer in the light of day. And we know the night is always gonna be here anyway Picking up is working up my appetite Looking forward to a little afternoon delight Rubbing sticks and stones together making sparks ignite And the thought of loving you is getting so exciting Skyrockets in flight Woo! Afternoon delight Whoop! Do you know what love is? I do it's CITR Radio 101.9 FM. You guys have it, I think. Huh. Afternoon delight. Afternoon. Oh, we're back on air? Okay. Uh, all right. This weekend, the Fire Hall Arts Center is presenting a very special fusion of local Vancouver history and Japanese traditional arts elements, namely kabuki and no, which is like a classical Japanese musical. It's called Shadow Catch, and it is a chamber opera, and it's part of Vancouver Pro Musica's Further East, Further West series. I spoke to Colleen Lanky. She's the artistic director of Tomoe Arts, and here she is to explain what Tomoe Arts does. aesthetics and one of the things we've been focusing on and really do focus on is classical Japanese dance which is actually kabuki kabuki mm -hmm. odori or kabuki dance it's something I practiced uh, and studied for 
well, I've been studying it for almost 15 years now, really. Mm-hmm. I, I, I really studied intensely for about seven years when I was in Japan. And I use, I try to use and incorporate the aesthetics and the forms of those, that dance in what Tomoe Arts does. Part of our mandate is also to produce support and create work that simply uses um, elements of traditional Japanese art and its aesthetics. So I, we do contemporary work. Right now what we've done is traditional concerts every second year where I've invited Japanese classical artists to come, and we're going to do another one of those in May. And the alternate years, our big project is a contemporary piece that is based um, in Japanese classical dance movement in some way. And the pieces that we've done so far have also used projections and non-traditional music. And mm, I would class it for someone who didn't know what the aesthetic was as mm-hmm. dance theater. Okay, so very you, theatricalized. Right. And when you say that you want to use the aesthetic, does that mean that you don't necessarily go whole hog and 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 recreate uh the the japanese traditional performing arts but just take sort of um one aspect of it is that what you mean yes mm-hmm. yes that's what i mean so you know i I've, I've tried not to to limit what we do so yeah. far the contemporary pieces that we've done have used the kata or forms of japanese classical dance and really pushed those boundaries mm-hmm. i would never call it traditional dance because people who are actual classical dancers would would be insulted. shocked. Well, yeah, <laughs> you can't. You know, it's, for me, it's all what you name it. I, I'm trained in the tradition, so I use some of the gestural patterns. I'll use some of the aesthetic concepts, like ma, um, some of the the gendered concepts like in classical Japanese dance. You dance male or female, mm-hmm. um, that sort of thing. I, I also studied no, which is a, a, another completely different form of traditional dance. Yeah, tell me, tell me about direction. that. Tell me about no, because I understand that the shadow catch is in influenced by no, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Which is one of the whole reasons I'm involved because it's it, the, the what basically how it all started is one of the four composers was in a class of mine at UBC. I was teaching Asian theater, and he had a, has always had a fascination with no theater, which is really a concert. No is dance and music and 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 acting and text and it's all it's a very complete theater form and he was as a composer extremely interested in the music and the idea of space and time which is integral to the art of no this uh the use of space and time is very different than anything else um so he was interested in that and that's how we got to know each other and he wanted to do this project that was based on based in some way on the dramaturgy and a little bit on the aesthetics of no and what's this about, so like, I, a god play, warrior play, woman play, and demon yeah. play? What is that? So, so no, in, in terms of its dramaturgy, and I know that's a big kind of, you know, weird, uh, academic-sounding word, but what it means is how the play is structured. So how plays are structured and the way that plays and stories are told in no is through memory, and very often the lead character is a ghost. Hmm. And what happens in the play is that a ghost comes to a living person, and doesn't always reveal themselves to be a ghost right away, but will later reveal themselves to have been a, a, a spirit that perhaps lived in this place that is clinging to life. There's a lot of Buddhist elements in that, mm-hmm. that has memories of a certain place or a certain um, need, and has is, is held on earth. So they will tell their story, and through reliving their story in some way, they are released or relieved of the burden and, and able to go on. 
So that's that's a kind of partial dramatic arc or a very common dramatic scene in the way no theater is constructed. And so that is, in fact, the way this play, Shadowcatch, is is actually constructed. It's it's in four parts, Mm -hmm. so it's very different than no. Usually no is in one or simply two parts. There is a listener character, which in Japanese classical no would be called a waki, um, and he is a living character. He's a person who lives today, who is current, who comes on, announces himself to the audience, basically, and says, this is who I am, this is what I'm doing here, and, you know, I, I think this about this place. And in our, in our play, in Shadowcatch, it's a young runaway who's arrived in the downtown east side mm-hmm. and finds himself in Oppenheimer Park. Um, overnight. He's a runaway, like so many young people who end up in Vancouver are from some small town somewhere. And as he sits on this summer night and tries to get some sleep against this tree in this park, he's visited by four people, in turn, who reveal themselves to be spirits or ghosts of the place. Mm -hmm. So their real selves existed at some point in the history of Oppenheimer Park. Tell me, tell and, me, sorry, can you mm-hmm. just elaborate a little bit more on some of these local stories? Because it's really fascinating how sure. you've got these Japanese, this traditional um, styles and techniques, and then you're fusing it with these very local stories. Yep. Well, the first local story that we touch on, which we've sort of classed as a god play, simply because of the the, the, the structure of the main character, and that is how these uh, categories of plays and no are determined by the main character, mm-hmm. this ghost character. And she's not a ghost per se. She's actually the spirit of a maple tree that used to exist in that park or near that park. There was a grove of maples, and in fact, the word for Vancouver in the Squamish language is kumkumalai, and I'm not pronouncing that exactly correctly, <laughs> but I, I'm trying, kumkumalai, um, which means grove of big maples or grove mm-hmm. of maples. And she, they, they were chopped down at a certain point and, you know, basically fed to Hastings Mill. Right. So she is the spirit of one of these ancient maple trees, and she appears to this young man to try to tell her story as to how she was cut down. The second spirit or being to appear to him is the ghost of an Asahi ball player. And now Oppenheimer Park in that area was at one time the heart and center of the Japanese-Canadian community. Right. And... This is a warrior play, which is perfect for a ball player. Uh, and and these Asahi players, it was the name of the ball team, is the Asahi, were, they were incredible. They won championships. They, they beat out a lot of, of the white teams, a lot of the other teams in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. They were pretty incredible, and they were heroes in their community. So this character is the ghost of one of those players. Wow. And he recalls his glory as a young man playing this game and the the wonder of the community and then the tragedy of how the entire community was uprooted and moved to internment camps which basically killed that community right. it's it's a real core of the of of that of that neighborhood really and and that story is very poignant in a sense that the whole neighborhood would be different if that had never happened right and you, you know, I, I sit in that neighborhood and I look around and I think, you know, if the internment of the Japanese-Canadian community hadn't happened, if that very shameful part of Canadian history hadn't happened, 
that this neighborhood would be a very different place. Because today there isn't really a lot of it left, you know, in terms of, you know, artifacts or, or even just signage, you know, to tell you that that, that was there. You, you don't know, right? Yeah, they're trying. There's, they're putting up some signage and there's some imagery and some pictures. There's a Japanese Buddhist uh, temple still mm -hmm. right across from the park and the Japanese language school and hall, which is a, an, a, a building from that period, from, I think it's the 1910s since it was actually built or the old part of it was built. And so there's snippets and there's still, you know, a rooming house called the Tamara House and, you know, but really, no, it's very hard to see because they didn't go back. Mm. Where did so, they go? I mean, what happened to these people? A lot of people stayed in the neighborhoods where they were interned, so right. a lot of people never came back to Vancouver because it was too hard, because everything they had was gone. Right. The government sold it for pennies. Hmm. And they, didn't, they lost everything. Their fishing boats and their farms and their houses and their stores and their shops and their hotels and everything. So... It was really hard. I think a lot of people chose not to come back, and some people did. But, for instance, you know, the Nikkei Center, there's a, a national um, Japanese-Canadian heritage center museum, and they built it in Burnaby. Mm -hmm. They chose not to build it in downtown Vancouver, probably for money reasons, like expense reasons, and the fact that the neighborhood had changed so much by the time they built it that it wasn't really viable. And, you know, so a lot of these of businesses and centers and churches and the things that, in, that that were part of the Japanese community have spread out all over the place. Hmm. Do you think that this show can help to maybe exercise some of the demons, if you'll forgive that analogy? Well, I, you know, I, it would be nice to think so. I, I don't know. I think there's potential for the show itself to be able to give some voice to that. Mm -hmm. I, I would hope so. I, I really hope that this production of it um, shows some of that, and I think what might be wonderful is if it could get a remount in the park itself, outdoors at some right. point, if the music would allow for it, it would be really interesting to see that happen. I, I think doing art about that neighborhood does give voice to some of this history, mm -hmm. but the, the play is not just about this Asahi ball player. He's, th this is really one of the core, and because we're using Japanese aesthetics, it, it sort of speaks rather um, strongly to that. Yeah. But it's it's not the only factor in the play. It's it's about this neighborhood in general as it being such a rich and important part of Vancouver. I just want to ask you. We're running out of time, but I want to ask you: sure. What do you love about the, these Japanese traditional performing art forms? Um, just as an artist, what do you find you know stimulating and, and challenging, and just just makes you want to you know keep at it again and again? Oh, I, I mean, I, I think the aesthetics are so beautiful that they speak so deeply to uh, a sense of a deep understanding of things. I think the use of the you know, silence is so critical, and I just think that that doesn't exist in the same way in any other art form I've ever seen. I think the idea of being able to talk, in terms of no, especially, about memory as action. You know, Western culture is so involved in doing and doing and doing and doing. And, you know, this form is about reflection. Mm -hmm. And it's about reliving these these things. But it's really about memory. Um, the other two lead characters in the play also are about memory. You know, the, the third character is a, a madam from the 1910s who ran a brothel there, and she remembers a young woman that she 
had a hand in, you know, she believes she's guilty of handing over to someone who killed her. You know, so there's this guilt involved that she has to remember that in the talk of relationships and how lives are constantly intertwined. Mm. Um, and that is, that's a theme in Japanese know as well, is that our souls are intertwined and that's why these spirits come back to talk to the living. And I think that that's so beautiful mm. and so important. You know, even the demons, the fourth character is, in fact, a demon. Um, he's a, a cop from the 1930s and part of the Battle of Valentine Pier and then ended up in the corruption of the Mulligan era in the 50s when there was a huge corruption scandal in the police force here. And, and he's an alcoholic, mm-hmm. right? He's, he's a ghost at this point, but he's an alcoholic. and So he's demonized by his guilt and by his anger and by his alcohol, but he's part of who we all are in the city, right? Hmm. So that's that's what I think is important is these memories. And um, and even though we have plays today written about historical events, it's not the same thing. It's not as if somebody's coming and saying, no, I'm I'm actually a spirit, and this is what happened to me. <laughs> right. Right, and, and right? all of the force that that has, you know, the, the personal touch yeah. to say, this was me, this is this is what happened to me. Yeah, yeah exactly. Awesome. Exactly. Well, yeah. I wish we had anyway. more time, but uh, this is such a fascinating uh, topic, and I'm glad that uh, that uh, the folks in Vancouver who who aren't familiar with this art form will will get a chance to um, explore it and see it uh, at least some of it in, in action. Yeah, me too. I, I think it'll be really really an interesting treatment of these stories, and um, yeah, really kind of an exciting project. Great. Thank you so much for telling us about it. Thank you. What we do is uh, work that's got an aesthetic of Japanese tradition. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry about that. And uh, that's Colleen Lanky uh, telling us about Tomoe Arts and uh, Shadow Catch coming to the Fire Hall um, as part of Pro uh, Vancouver Pro Musica's Further East, Further West series. Um, and that was a really, I really enjoyed that conversation that we had. So I'm glad we got to play the entirety of it. It's a bit longer than our usual interviews, but, um, but it seems that we've got a bit of extra time on this week's art support. Um, we've got until six, six thirty, So it works out. Now, let me give you some information about Shadow Catch. It's, uh, doesn't have a very long run. So you've got to check it out. One of three nights, uh, December 2nd. 3rd and 4th, which is uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So it's just over the weekend. And um, on Sunday, there's also a 2 p.m. Uh, matinee. And this is happening at the Fire Hall Arts Center, which is, of course, 280 East Cordova Street in Vancouver. Tickets are $18 and $30. And you can get more information on um, specific... Um, dates and times, and, and you can also purchase tickets by going to vancouverpromusica.ca. That's vancouverpromusica.ca, all one word, and you can get uh, get more information and tickets there. Uh, 8 p.m., did I mention it's 8 p.m. Uh, is the showtime on December 2nd, 3rd, and 4th at the Fire Hall Arts Center, and tickets are $18 and $30. So check out vancouverpromusica.ca for more information on Shadow Catch. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break, but we've still got lots of show for you, including coming up next, uh, Faust is Dead, coming to the the Dorothy Somerset uh, Theatre here at UBC. So stay with us for that. And I thank you for- 
The music says it all, but we'd like to say it again. Thank you from all of us at CITR for your generous support during our 2011 fun drive. We just couldn't do it without you. You made a million dreams come true, and so I'm saying thanks a million to you. And we're back on the Arts Report here on CITR 101.9 FM and streaming online at CITR.ca. Uh, the Arts Report is on every Wednesday at 5 p.m. And the podcast uh, goes online uh, every Wednesday at around 8 or 9 p.m. And is available to be accessed for your view- <laughs> listening pleasure, not viewing pleasure, um, forever. So uh, that can be found at CITR.ca under uh, Shows podcasts and a for arts report or just go to itunes and type in arts report all right so two ubc masters of fine arts students are ready to present two plays at the dorothy somerset theater as part of their studies they are canadian gothic directed by Jeanette white and the other is faust is dead directed by chelsea haberlin there it is uh who is also the co-artistic director of local theater company it's a zoo Now, here's a description of the play. A famous philosopher arrives in Los Angeles, and in a round of chat show appearances, he announces the death of man and the end of history. When he meets up with a young man who is on the run from his father, a leading software magnet, they embark on a hedonistic voyage across America. But in the play's bloody conclusion, they discover that not all events are virtual. Okay, so that's the description, that's the synopsis of the play. But uh, here is Chelsea, the director, to tell us what it's really about. It's about primarily what we do to shield ourselves from reality. It was a play that was written in the 90s. It was written in 96, and it's um, when all of these ideas about technology and uh, screens being everywhere and all of that was kind of fresh. And Mm -hmm. so it talks a lot about um, what changes when you see things through screens and what's the difference... um, what happens when you talk to people through a computer versus face-to-face and um, ideas that we tell ourselves that allow us to kind of shield our shell- ourselves from what, what is the truth. Interesting. So um, it sounds like things that are still very much relevant in 2011. Yeah, they are. They are. But it, it, it's, it's interesting because it happened at a time when people were asking a lot of questions about how far will this go, how far will technology take us, how far will we be distanced from truth. Right. And so it asks these questions in kind of a, a genuinely curious sort of way, whereas now we kind of know, yeah, technology took over everything. <laughs> we're in it, you know, but back then they weren't sure. So it's, it's kind of, it's an interesting take on it all. Interesting. And is that something that's in the forefront of your mind as you are directing this project? Or is it simply... For me, it was, yeah. Yeah, It's a very tech-heavy production. We've used um, technology on the stage, and we've used live video, and we've used um, projections and lighting and all of that to um, allow you to kind of ask yourself that question as you're watching. So the story is telling you about that major theme, but also you're experiencing that theme as a viewer. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you have the option of watching something live or watching it played back on a screen, or you have the option, and and all of their surroundings are created in a technological kind of way. So you get the sense that they're really somewhere, but you understand at the same time that it's a simulation. Mm -hmm. So you're playing with that question for yourself. 
That's a very interesting thing you bring up there because a lot of shows that I see these days try to incorporate either projections or like a film like movie like scene and it the success of that always seems to vary right because film Absolutely. is not the same thing as live theater so it's kind of tricky to blend the two are you aware of that sort of conundrum I totally am <laughs> super fascinated with technology and the use of technology on stage and what productions can provide and what, you know, film playing live does. But I, I've often before tried to cram it into a space where it's not really appropriate just because I thought the technology was cool. Right, and that's, that's what of, seems to happen a lot, isn't it? It's just yeah, like, wow, this actually, is such a cool thing. Totally, and the feedback that you end up getting <laughs> is that it really pulls away from the story, mm -hmm. that people are so distracted by these images that you're throwing at them that have nothing to do with the story you're trying to tell and don't add in any way to the journey that the characters are on. But luckily, I was able to find a script <laughs> that, that uses my, my passion for technology on the stage in a way that really adds to the story and adds a whole other dimension to the text. Excellent. Now, I understand this is an MFA project at That's UBC. Right. Yeah. Is that right? Can you tell us about uh, what that entails? Is it a matter of directing a show and then writing a lot of papers about it? Um, well, right now, I don't have to write any papers. Right now, <laughs> well, I'm just doing the show. Because we're just in our first semester, so um, there's two shows that are playing. It's Canadian Gothic and um, Mind Faust is Dead. And basically, the assignment was just to choose a one-act play and then work with designers. I'm getting to work with all of the MFA designers and then produce the show, find hmm. actors and, you know, create a design and put it up. Um, so, you know, it's, it's fairly basic, but the bonus is that UBC has some really sweet equipment and we get really awesome mentorship, and so it's kind of creating a production in a really optimal environment. Nice. So, so it's us at our best. Right, and it's very practical-based. Um, yeah, it is, it is. A lot of talk about, you know, kind of the basics of telling a story on stage. Cool. Uh, now, you're also a co-artistic director of It's a Zoo, is that right? I am, yes. And you've had a very busy year. We've had such a big year. <laughs> we had to cram it all in before I started school, so we basically did a whole season in like six months. <laughs> so I'm just curious, what uh, do you have anything uh, planned in the future that you'd like to plug? Yeah, totally. We Well, we're, right now we're on a, a bit of a development phase. We're mm -hmm. just kind of looking ahead and developing new scripts and fundraising and doing all of that to try to regroup after our massively busy last few months. Mm -hmm. But what we're looking ahead to... Um, this actually, I, it links into Faust is Dead. Faust is Dead is a production that is a piece of in-your-face theater. It's this sort of trend in theater that began in uh, Britain in uh, the 90s. And it's all about plays that are super visceral and, like, just literally in your face. So mm -hmm. they have, you know, sex and violence and swearing, and they make they ask hard questions in a way that is aggressive, and they make the audience sit up and listen. And um, this is a new form that we've just recently discovered, that Itzazu has recently discovered, and all of the artistic directors are super fascinated by it right now. So I'm doing Faust is Dead at school as kind of an experiment to try out all these ideas and see how an audience receives it. And then in the summer, we're going to be doing Mojo by Jez Butterworth, which is this really awesome piece that's set in, uh, in a bar. And we're, gonna, we're, we're negotiating right now with the Anza Club to hopefully set it as a site-specific production in the Anza Club. Mm -hmm. So you literally walk into this 1950s rock and roll bar that's just inhabited by these deadbeat losers as they, and they go on this kind of adventure. It's very cool. <laughs> very cool script. I love deadbeat losers. What? I love Deadbeat Losers. I know. It makes for a good story, right? <laughs> <laughs> it does. And, and now tell me quickly a little bit about this um, this in-your-face theater. What, uh, like you say, it's it's sort of got everybody buzzing, and I, and I wonder why. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it, it, it isn't a super new form. It's, I mean, it's from, you know, like early 90s, mm -hmm. but 
it's almost never done in Vancouver. Like, we've been looking into it, and there's, you know, maybe a handful in the past 15 years of examples of pieces of interface theater that were done. And I think a part of that is, is that it's, um, it's really challenging theater. People like to go see things that are fun and easy. They like to see White Christmas. They like to see musicals. They like to see comedies, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and people, if are going to spend money, rarely will spend money on a piece that's going to challenge them and be difficult. But the great thing is, with this, because it's free, you, <laughs> you don't have to pay money. You just show up. So anyway, so that's why they're, they're rarely done. And when they are done, they're always controversial and engaging pieces because they do things that you're not supposed to do on stage. Um, someone saw it last night, saw a dress rehearsal, and said that Faust is Dead was like theater that she hadn't seen since she was in New York in the 80s. So cool. it's just really, you know, it's like really hardcore theater. And it's, it's not your traditional black box, you know, show. It, it really kind of goes further than that. Do you think it's almost necessary in sort of the, the climate that we live in today to kind of maybe shake people I a little bit? I think it's super necessary because <laughs> we are very desensitized in a lot of ways. You know, everyone's seen Tarantino. Everyone's seen those kinds of films. And so we, we um, have really high expectations in terms of what's going to shock us. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you take a Tarantino film and you put it on stage... Like, uh, you know, it goes that much further. It asks that much more of the audience, that much more hard-hitting. So that's kind of what this does. Um, and also, I think a lot of younger people really aren't that interested in theater. They need to be honest, like, generally. So you kind of have to give them a reason to give it a try. Mm-hmm. And so It's a Zoo does that all the time by doing site-specific theater and promenade theater and theater kind of disguised as a party. And, like, we try to kind of sneak it in there any way we can. And then people see theater and they think, oh, my gosh, I really like theater. And then they see more theater, you know? It's sort of so, a gateway um, drug. It is. I told, that's what we should call it. <laughs> and I should call myself, I'm a gateway drug artist. Um, <laughs> so, that, so that's what this is. He's like, oh, I don't want to see a play. And then you go to play and you're, you know, you're, you're all blown up everywhere and you love it. And then you see more. So I think it's very necessary. Chelsea Haberlin speaking there. She's a co-artistic director of It's a Zoo Theater as well as a MFA student at UBC. And that's where she is bringing Faust is Dead. Or that's where she is directing Faust is Dead, which is happening at Dorothy Somerset Theater here on the UBC campus together with Canadian Gothic. And that has a very brief run from December the 1st until the 30th with a preview tonight, November 30th and the ticket price is free zero dollars so check it out it's um 6361 university boulevard here on the ubc campus and curtain is 7 30 i repeat the curtain is 7 30 p.m not 8 p.m so make sure you get there on time and check out uh, faust is dead together with canadian gothic oh yes and that reminds me chelsea wanted me to let you all know that uh, canadian gothic is uh, a great compliment because it's very different from faust is dead and it's uh faust and the faust's um uh in your face approach it's uh, it's much more um um composed and um you know not in your face. <laughs> so they, they're a good pair. All right, so check that out. It's uh, at the Dorothy Somerset uh, Studio uh, at 7.30 tonight until December the 3rd, which is a Saturday, and it's absolutely free. So check that out. All right. A um, couple of things interesting um, in that interview, though, Anna, uh, who's uh, Anna with one end, who's in here in the studio with me, um, is this issue of using um, film or projections in plays. And I'm really glad Chelsea brought up the fact that 
oftentimes audiences come back with like, oh, that was really jarring or, oh, that didn't, you know, that kind of threw me off. And yeah, I mean, I've seen that a lot of times, but it seems like I think she's on the right track. Yeah. I think we so. We will find out. <laughs> we will find out. We're going to go check out no, the... No, no, uh, she, she sounded really excited about it. And that's good. Like, she, she's obviously... Well, we, we can't really... We haven't seen the show, sure, but sure. she has the, the right idea about the use of technology in theater. And uh, and I think... And then she she said at the end that how, how tough it is to get younger audiences to go mm-hmm. to the theater because they wanted fast and quick and gore and violence mm-hmm. like you know we would actually people don't even go to the movies anymore like it's it's just to the movies yeah well they do but what i mean it's like they go when it's a big blockbuster right, right? it's yeah. something that you want to watch on 3d or yeah. you know it needs to be promoted like on notepads and <laughs> yeah yeah and it has to be 3d or there has to be some sort of gimmick to attract yeah. people even the, to films much less plays exactly and that's that's not happening to theater theater you know it's 3D. It is it 3D. Is, it's it naturally 3D. 3D. So why not integrate technology and um, and and projectors like and 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 now in this this 2011 like you can get so many great visuals and uh, and as you said also the the fact that they can actually take advantage of the equipment at UBC mm-hmm. from being like I'm sure an MFA student at UBC would be able to deliver a really good show with really good stuff. Yeah, with the resources that, that, with the that resources, are available. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But it is very tricky, though, because I definitely have had that feeling where it's like, where I don't know, there's just something about the fact that you're live in a room with, with humans who are breathing and, and staring you, you know, with their eyeballs into yeah. your eyeballs. And then to suddenly be watching a film on a screen, it's just like, what, like, what are you doing? Like, we're... This is a play. Stop it. Yeah, <laughs> you know? that's that's the trick. Like you can't. When I think it's mostly in transitions, when when it uh, throws off the, the audience that you you just you know if you get a screen with a projector in front of you that's mm-hmm. a little bit too much. But you've had something projected on the wall and then something on the roof. Yeah, and, almost like, like as a complement to yeah, the action yeah, on the exactly. stage rather than a substitute. You can have a whole set just being a projection. Mm-hmm. You can you can play with with video and and sound so much. And it doesn't have to be your your regular a screen and a projector in the background or something like that. What was that show at Pacific Theater that uh, did that extremely well just a few weeks ago? Oh, that was. Uh... <laughs> oh no, it's escaped me too. Oh. I was I was hoping you just Mark-Namara, like. Mark Namara, Mark Namara. What was the name? I can't believe it. Okay, look this up. It was this and. And this was on just a few weeks ago, and what they did and so fantastically actually- is how they it was woven together. Like the the projection aspects were were almost literally woven with um, the onstage action, and they interacted with the projections. Let's say, I mean, projections almost feels like the wrong word because it was it wasn't just a they didn't just pull down a white screen and put it on. What was the name of it? Reunion. Reunion. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Honestly, it was the best show I've seen this year so far. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, be, and, and partly because of that, because the audio and the visuals were so yeah, beautifully had, interwoven with the they play. They had a video camera in the, in the audience yeah. so that it would project live the character on the screen. Like, it was yeah, that seems whole, to work, right? Because yeah. it's live. It, that complements the liveness of live theater yeah. is that the camera's rolling and you can see what the camera sees behind the person, but it's just showing the live person. It's just, it's just recording um, the person that we can see. And, and you can see them bigger 
behind them. So it has a cool effect because it's the same person, but it's it's filmized. integrated some way. And that's, yeah, that's yeah. That's what's important. Exactly. Okay. And it should be appealing for for younger ad- audiences as well. Like they're not going to see White Christmas, you know. Right, younger audiences who are looking for more of that kind of sophistication uh, in terms of the technology. Right. But it is a challenge, and, and I'm glad you mentioned it. It's a, it's a challenge for all of us that mm-hmm. we like uh, to push the theater. boundaries. Yeah, and, and well, theater, like we like to promote theater, and we like to talk about it, and we like to go to theater, and it's and it's we want to have more people. We do, we do. Yeah, we <laughs> want to find to, ways to, to going to the theater and to bring people with us, right? Especially if it's rainy and wet and cold outside, go to the theater. It'll keep you warm. There's. Great people in Vancouver doing great, great, great theater. And on that note, we're going to take a quick break and tell you more about uh, exciting events happening in Vancouver, uh, namely Penny Plain, which is playing now at The Colch. So stay with us. We'll be back. Jazz is a word that means many different things to many different people. The best definition of jazz that I know of is The Jazz Show on CITR with yours truly, Gavin Walker. Monday nights, 9 to midnight, with the jazz feature at 11 o'clock. Check us out every Monday. And we are back on the Arts Report here on CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver. And it's almost 6 o'clock, but we are going to go overtime. We're going to call it Arts Report Overtime and go a little bit longer until 6.30. Um, The next thing we want to tell you about is Penny Plain. Ronnie Burkett has been working with marionettes and puppets in shows across Canada and the world for over 20 years. His latest opus is Penny Plain, and it deals with apocalyptic themes... And it's playing now at The Culch. I spoke to Ronnie earlier today, and we talked about the unique theatrical power of these little human-like objects that we call puppets. And I asked him if uh, puppets are easier to work with than human actors. (laughs) But first, here he is with a synopsis of Penny Plain. Yeah, it's kind of an um, end-of-the-world apocalyptic drawing room comedy. There, how weird is that sound? <laughs> a little bit weird. Basically, at the top of the show, we hear uh, news announcements about, you know, all sorts of uh, chaos in the outside world. Um, end of oil, pandemic has struck, uh, extreme weather. And so at the very top of the show, we, we know where we're sitting. And essentially, it's the last three days of civilization. But it's set in a rooming house run by a blind woman. Mm-hmm. And uh, her companion dog, Jeffrey, decides he wants to go live as a man, so he leaves. And uh, she's momentarily alone and interviews other dogs and finally chooses a human girl who's passing herself off as a dog. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I want to ask you about this this theme of the apocalypse, because it's certainly been sort of in the zeitgeist, I guess, ever since the, the turn of the millennium. But uh, certainly with 2012, uh, it, it's sort of back in the news. I just want to know, where did you get the inspiration for this? Well, you know, a lot of my um, a lot of my global thinking comes mm-hmm. from reading far too much David Suzuki, so I blame him. <laughs> but uh, beyond that, you know, I've just been um, increasingly aware, like most people, of two things: one, the fragility of the planet. You know, there's seven billion of us now wanting a lot of stuff off of this planet, 
so that's been in my mind. Um, and also, you know, 24-hour news keeps us pretty jacked up these days, um, you know, with, with nonstop stories about disaster, disaster, disaster. So I, I just kind of bought into that sort of thinking and thought, well, the world actually would do quite well without us. So it's not an end of the world piece, it's right. an end of civilization piece. And so uh, my premise is as soon as mankind gets out of the way, the planet will, you know, regenerate itself and do quite well. Right, start to heal. Yeah. I see. And, okay, and then let me ask you this. You've been doing this for 40 years, is that right? I've, I've been uh, jiggling for money for 40 years, <laughs> yeah, and uh, Theatre of Marionettes is on its 25th anniversary tour right now. Yeah. And when you started, uh, as far as I know, there, were, there weren't things like The Muppet Show or um, Sesame well, Street. Well, Muppets were just uh, okay. starting, you know, when I was a kid, because they were on Ed Sullivan and all that, and of course had been around before me. But um, right when I, you know, was about 19 years old, I think, The Muppet Show hit, mm-hmm. and, and so the great Muppet boom began, and, and, and puppetry took on a whole new sort of public awareness, in a way. And did you take inspiration from that, or, or what, you know, what was inspiration for you to, to get into this field? My inspirations were a lot of old puppeteers, yeah. you know, guys who did marionettes, and, and, and the downside of the Muppet thing, or maybe it was an upshot for mm-hmm. me, is that suddenly puppetry all looked like that. It was all mm-hmm. soft and fleecy and television puppetry, which, you know, is amazing work, but suddenly, you know, doing marionettes for live audiences was considered very old-fashioned, and uh, so old-fashioned that it seemingly was new. So when I Hmm. started, there weren't many people, if any, doing adult work, you know, and certainly not with marionettes. So I completely took inspiration from from the Muppets by thinking, well, I don't want to do that, and I don't want to be sort of saccharine and and family entertainment, and I don't really want to work on television. So it kind of allowed me to just veer off on my own track. Now, uh, I want to ask you about the sort of atmosphere of this kind of work, because whenever I see um, puppets or marionettes on the stage, that I can't help but there's a sort of, sort of eeriness to them <laughs> from yeah. an audience perspective, because, you know, they're very lifelike and they're, and they're more sort of real than, say, a cartoon. And, and so I just wonder, what's, uh, what do you think is the, the sort of greatest asset, or what can you, you know, do to an audience using the, these kind of things? Well, because those characters that are created don't exist in the real world. You know, mm-hmm. if we go to the theater and we see a, a beloved actor or actress in a role, I know that I certainly always take a fair amount of time thinking, oh, I love her, and I loved her in that last thing I saw. <laughs> and, and, oh, now she's playing this Scottish lady. You know, so there's always a moment where you have to go, oh, okay, that's, that's what I'm watching. Whereas, you know, with a puppet, it's essentially an empty vessel. It, right. it exists only to be that character and, and honor the script in that way. So it really is, and now this sounds all woody doody but it really is the audience and the performer filling that iconic right. little thing and, and bringing our own frames of reference to it. And then it sort of becomes alive in a weird way, even though it's not. It's complete artifice. But it exists only to be that character, which I think is, for some people, magical. Hmm. Well, we love Ludi Duty things on this show. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly on the West Coast, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yes, even more so. You know, we, we have a certain green substance that uh, encourages us. <laughs> but, Grass. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And um, in, in terms of uh, the kind of uh, palette, let's say, of the, the, the subject matter, um, I'm, I'm just wondering what, 
what kind of themes do you like to to work with or or, or what do you like to what, what can you do because again you say you, you know you don't necessarily do sesame sort of family oriented stuff is it is it really um anything and everything that you can deal with pretty much yeah, yeah. i mean most most puppeteers um you know certainly when they're doing adult work now tend to veer off into fantasy Mm-hmm. Or really blue material, so as it's called in showbiz, still mm-hmm. you know. Um, uh, I, you know, I'm not that guy who makes gargoyles and 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 fantasy creatures, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I'm more fascinated by my species, right? So right. what I've always done is I've used puppetry as a vehicle to shrink us right. and examine us in miniature. So uh, a lot of the puppet books I grew up with when I was a kid said, "Never make little people." Well. Screw it, I do. I make little people. <laughs> yeah, screw that rule. Because I, I think it's a great way to examine the species. You right. Know? Um, and, and like I said before, because they're not human in a way for many people, that allows them to approach without thinking, oh, that's me. Right, almost paradoxi- paradoxically, um, you can almost see more humanity, right? Because you're not distracted by, as you say, you know, oh, I've seen this actor before, and aren't they great, all that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. And uh, I just want to ask you as a final note about your 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 actors, your, your cast. I understand that there are costume changes and things, so it made me wonder, um, what are they like to work with? Are they easier than humans? Um, I, I like being alone up there, but, you know... <laughs> Here's, here's the road to Weirdville. You know, I never really feel alone. Sometimes, <laughs> you know, I feel like I'm in the middle of a conversation, so I just need to get out of the way so these voices coming out of my mouth can have a true conversation. Really? And, and do you find that there's a, still a two-way street with these, these inanimate objects? Absolutely. But, you know, that's why I like going to work every night, because some nights it really is magical. Some nights, and I'm... We'll never figure out that thing of how a couple hundred strangers can come together in the dark and, and without discussion, agree to be a terrific audience. Right. And, and when they do agree silently to be a terrific audience, and, and I'm in the zone, then, you know, it really is, it's the reason I show up for work. It's magical. And other nights, they just come and cough all over me. So, <laughs> and then it's a night at work, and you still have to tell the t- same story with the same emotional impact. But um, the audience, I, I don't think they realize how important they are to any live experience. And that's Ronnie Burkett telling, reminding us about the power of the audience and the part that they pay, play in, uh, in any, any theatrical presentation. Uh, all right, so that's Penny Plain, and uh, that is uh, playing right now at uh, the Historic Theatre at The Cult, which is, of course, 1895 Venable Street at Victoria Drive. And this is running until... December the 4th as well the 6th to the 11th and then the 13th until the 17th okay so there's a lot of runnings of this show so the best thing to do is go to tickets.theculch.com and uh, get information on all the specific times and show dates and also about tickets which are $45 and they are on sale uh, right now so check them out and that's tickets.theculch.com All right, so we're going to take one more quick uh, break, and when we return, we'll tell you about a unique collaboration between the Playhouse and their presentation of Le Cage aux Folles and Dare Arts, an organization that helps uh, young people uh, expand their minds through performing arts. So stay with us.
It's T-shirt time. T-shirt time. It's T-shirt time. Everybody knows it's T-shirt time. So nice. T-shirt time. It's T-shirt time. Oh, my God. Shut up now. Shirtless robots listen to CITR 101.9 FM. I'm just trying to let everybody know so they put their T-shirts on. Sausage, pork, beef, cheese, whole milk, butter, margarine, nuts, and sausage, pork, beef, cheese, whole milk, butter, margarine, nuts, and sausage, sausage pork, pork, beef, beef, cheese, cheese whole, milk, whole milk, butter, butter, margarine, margarine nuts, nuts and sausage, sausage, pork, pork, sausage, pork, 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 Press 1 if you are tripping balls. Press 2 if you are planning to trip balls. Press 3 if all the balls have been tripped, yet you find yourself adrift amongst the tubes of the ether dreaming of tubes amongst spheres that have not yet been you pressed 1, you are tripping balls. Relax. You're not tripping balls. You're listening to CITR 101.9 FM. Wow, I am tripping balls now. Um, my God, that was the most surreal CITR ad I've ever heard in my life. I'm a little frightened right now. I, 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 where am I? I don't even... Are we on the air? What's going on? Oh, my God. That was... I need to have a chat with the PSA folks because whatever they're smoking when they make these ads... Don't get me wrong. It's a great ad. I love all the ads at CITR equally. They are like my children. Um, but some of them are stranger than others, like that one. That one's a freak. Uh, okay, we're back on the art support, I think, or, or the Tripping Balls Variety Hour. I don't, I don't know what's on anymore. Um, you're listening to us on CITR, 101.9 FM in Vancouver, and we're streaming online at CITR.ca. Our podcast from this show, if you've missed any of our program tonight, will be available in just a matter of a few short hours, and you can do that just by going to iTunes and writing down the arts report and uh, follow the links accordingly. And uh, because we've had a great show with a lot of uh, different events, uh, whether they be uh, Penny Plain at the Cult or uh, Faust is Dead at uh, UBC Theatre or Shadow Catch uh, at the Fire Hall, tons of great stuff going on. So if you've missed any of our show, do check out the podcast. Um, also go to citr.ca right now, and there's also a little rundown with links uh, on the events that we had on the show. So you can, uh, you can click the links and you know, get a sense of what's going on around town uh, this weekend. So, uh, the Playhouse right now is presenting La Cage au Folle, and that started on November the 26th. And uh, on Saturday, there will be a special matinee where before the show, there will be a group of elementary school students um, who will do their own performance and present sort of an art exhibit. Uh, it's all thanks to Dare Arts, a national organization that helps students expand their minds and expand their thinking and understanding of themselves and others uh, using uh, the performing arts, performing and visual arts. And it's a really cool collaboration that they're doing with the Playhouse, and they're doing it again uh, for La Cage au Folle. And so I spoke to Genevieve Anthony, 
who is from Dare Arts. And um, what she told me is that this time around, the children are exploring the private self versus the public self. And they'll do that through things like mask making. Um, so a natural question was, how does uh, Casual Fall, how is that a good vehicle for the exploration of the private self versus the public self? Because the play looks at the idea of who we are through our clothing, mm. who we are through our makeup, but more importantly, who we are internally as a person, regardless of what society has said we are. Right. Got it. Cool. And so I imagine there's going to be a lot of mask making. We've had, <laughs> we did a 101 into Commedia dell'arte. Oh, great. On Monday. And today they did a mask working workshop, mask making workshop at the, uh, the Playhouse. Mm -hmm. And uh, they will be doing their performance on Saturday while wearing the masks and doing their vocal pieces and movement. Cool. Tell me about that. Tell me what you have, like what you're working on for uh, Saturday in, in terms of the sort of programming, I guess. Well, Saturday, they put themselves through their own performance uh, because we believe leadership, so they're self-driven. Uh, they are doing a group piece through movement along with their murals that they've also painted mm -hmm. that demonstrates how they see who I am, with my quotation fingers in the air, <laughs> who you are, as they ask that question of their peers, mm -hmm. their intimate peers, who they are and we are as a class, as well as a society, and then finally how they are their art. How are they disciplined? How do they take action? Responsibility, respect. How do they reflect? And how are they excellent? Now, if I remember these murals, are they similar to the ones you did uh, last time around? Similar, absolutely. Right, and when I saw those, they're, they're very interesting because they're... They can be sort of abstract, and um, you know, there's a lot of shapes and symbols and colors. And uh, can you tell me a bit about how they come up with them? You know, that that process of you know, here's the idea in my head, and here's what's coming up from my brush. They started through a writing process mm -hmm. in which they were asked, "Who am I?" and to write down descriptive words on one side of a piece of paper. Then on the other side of the piece of paper, they translated those words into images, icons, symbols mm -hmm. that were private to them and that the public audience might not necessarily meet and understand what that meant specifically sure. so that they were safe. And then they asked themselves who they thought their peers were, their class were, and how they were their arts. This went from the word, the, the literature aspect of it, into images and icons and symbols. That rough draft that they did in small group work was then put onto the larger canvases and painted. But what does Dare Arts want to do? What do you guys want to achieve with these children? We want to bring out their full potential so that they can be the best version of their leader self mm -hmm. as they see it and that we use the arts as a tool for them to do that. 
Do you think the arts is a better tool than maybe the things that kids are getting in the school from their textbooks or, you know, PE or, you know, everything else? Well, you know, sometimes steak is good and sometimes <laughs> sushi's better. <laughs> and so sometimes sports is the way to go. And then sometimes arts is the way to go. Oh. And for some people, reading through a textbook is their, you know, what what touches them. So I think it takes all kinds to reach all kinds. I couldn't possibly say that one is better than another. Mm-hmm. I'm a big sports advocate. You're not going to catch me on that one, Buster. I tried. And what are you seeing so far, um, you know, in terms of uh, feedback from the kids or just observations of what, you, you know, what you're seeing them in action? Any, any highlights? Oh, today mm-hmm. we took the SkyTrain and had interviews with the kids. Uh, we have Roy Mulder, who's our videographer, so he's recording them. And they, we had six kids who spoke about how they have found that their arts has affected them. It was really cool <laughs> to see these cute little muffins say things like, their arts has changed my life. I was shocked, so I said, <laughs> you know, I had your job, right? The interviewing job? Mm-hmm. I was like, wow. Um, how does their arts change your life? Well, for the first time, I'm learning to speak up, and people are actually hearing me, and they're respecting me because they actually know I'm in the room. Wow. Wow. Like, I, as the interviewer, I was trying to keep it together. <laughs> as the teacher, I just wanted to, like, jump up and down, hug the little guy. and You know, it was really, really cool. Um, another girl talked about how she's uh, she's very much the flip-your-hair flip type of girl. Mm-hmm. So she said, I've always been a leader, and I always know I'm a leader, but I finally realized through Dare Arts I can be a different kind of leader. I can let other people lead. Mm. Wow. You know, to learn how to be a silent leader and set the example in grade 7, pretty remarkable. Yeah, in grade 7, there are people in their um, 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s who are still struggling with that lesson. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. grade 7 is pretty good to get that. Yes. So uh, another girl shared how the fact that she has learned the type of um, message, silent message she sends out to people is very disrespectful because hmm. she has never made eye contact. And she's learning that because she's starting to make eye contact, she's giving respect. And because she's giving respect, she's getting respect. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty cool. That's very cool. It was a pretty cool interview session. And and I'm just curious, like something like that, the the example you just gave there, is that coming through something like the mural work? Like where where are they making these discoveries? They're making that because we also have the strong, strong aspect of drama. Not only were those uh, words translated into images that were translated into the murals, those words were turned into movements, which were now as part of the creation that will go up on Saturday as their full dramatic movement piece. So, so, so it's, it's just the sort of the fact that, that there's so many different sort of media that they get to explore their ideas and, and test out their, their thoughts and opinions and, and perceptions that through all those things that they, it kind of comes out. Yep, wow. absolutely. Very cool. It's, you know, we are, Dare Arts represents all the arts. Mm-hmm. So we are fashion. Today we had a workshop on fashion. They learned about King Louis XIV and his um, red high heels. 
we work on architecture, so they were uh, invited to see you know, the high ceilings of the workshop as well as the architecture that is needed for the intimate space of recital hall. We look at uh, music, drama, dance, literature, visual arts, and the list goes on and on. <laughs> and uh, very quickly, could you tell me how this partnership uh, with the Playhouse uh, came together. It seems like a very inspired uh, collaboration. The partnership with the Vancouver Playhouse Theatre started with Opus Art Supplies. Mm -hmm. Opus is the one that has really instigated all of this, so we're super appreciative. Not only did they bring us here last year, Mm -hmm. they brought us back this year. When you say brought you, because you guys are based in Toronto. Well, we are across the country, but this is our second time in Vancouver. We're in Nova Scotia, Mm -hmm. uh, Alberta, northern um, Aboriginal communities, and um, yeah, out here. Wow, and are you hoping to continue to expand? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, I can't wait to get out to Alberta, um, and for sure Manitoba. I'd love to work in Manitoba, for sure. And that is Genevieve Anthony from Dare Arts, which is, as you heard, all over Canada and expanding even beyond. And uh, they're working with elementary school students in Vancouver to bring a special presentation to Saturday's matinee performance of La Cage aux Folles. So that's Saturday... Uh, where is it here? I just had it in front of me. Ah, oh, here it is. December the 3rd, 2011 at 2 p.m. And if you come, uh, say, about an hour early at uh, 1 p.m. or just after 1 p.m., you'll be able to to see um, what these children have uh, created. So check it out. That's at the Playhouse. And you can get more information on uh, La Cage Fall and uh, general information, ticket prices, et cetera, et cetera, by going to VancouverPlayhouse.com. Also on Friday, on Friday, Saturday. Oh my God, that was so perfect. I said the wrong thing. Almost a perfect Almost. transition. Oh. Anyway. Tell us, is there something else going on on Saturday? There Anna? is something else going on on Saturday, December 3rd. Um, it's actually wrong on this website. They should know that. Um, what so is it? Th- it's the diorama party. <laughs> what is that? Oh, exactly. What is that? What is that? It is I a party. It's, a t- it's, it's been done 22 times. And you don't know. This is a 22nd annual diorama party. Well, it's, now I feel bad. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you should know. It's uh, 21 intricate handmade dioramas based on wow. twisted holiday themes. Will be assembled for one night only at Vancouver's infamous alternative holiday party. Wow. So it happens on celebrities. And it's Saturday. So I'm just going to keep reading what they have. Yeah, please tell us more. Way. Yeah. 20 years ago, the diorama, diorama party had its start in a cramped West End apartment. It grew year by year, eventually taking over commercial venues and transforming into a fundraiser with full burlesque performances, acrobatics, and live music. Hmm. This year, the massive diorama tree, an assembly of 21 dioramas stacked together. Stacked together? Yes. In a I, super diorama. In a tree. In a tree. <laughs> like, well, not in a tree, but it becomes a tree. Oh, it becomes a tree. Yeah. And also, I got, uh, they, I was told that uh, the, the people, the 20 one groups of people mm-hmm. that are doing the dioramas, they don't know what, what everyone else is doing. They will okay. all find out this Saturday, and then cool. they'll put it all together. 
And uh, yeah, that will happen at Celebrities. And this year's performance include drag stars and a silk acrobat and live jazz and vocalists. And uh, it's going to be a great party. And it's all it all goes. Uh, uh, it's all proceeds goes to benefit community. Him, that's a health initiative for men. The Queer History Project, Screaming Weenie Theater, Rumble Productions, and uh, yeah, so it's ten bucks at the door. Uh, starts uh, a show starts at nine p.m. So better be there at eight when the doors open. And yeah, check it out. Cool. Wow, that sounds great. The only thing I know about dioramas is uh, from that Simpsons episode, that classic where Lisa makes the telltale heart and it drives her crazy because she. What is it? She steals it from someone? Or? It's a, yeah. it's a heartbeat, right? Yeah, the heartbeat. Yeah, yeah. But she feels yeah. bad because I think she stole someone else's. There you go. Something like that. Anyway, and that's so you can if you've seen that episode and enjoyed it, <laughs> and that's the only thing you know about dioramas, you can actually see them in the flesh this Saturday. Yeah. Cool. All right. Thanks for telling us about that. No problem. Well, before we're nearing the end of our program for today, but uh, we've got another thing to tell you about, and uh, Nick Sartori, our arts report correspondent, is here in studio as well to uh, to tell us about that. Uh, Nick, what's going on tonight? There's so many things happening. I don't know I how know. I can beat the diorama, though. Yeah. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> oh, please compete with the oh, diorama. <laughs> cool, cool. Um, this event, though, is tonight. Tonight? So it, well, and what? It's, and it's six, I know. And it's 6.25 right now, according to this clock on the yeah, wall. That is correct. Um, which means that you have 35 minutes to make it to the Freddie Wood Theater. This is the Frederick Wood Theater on UBC campus. Um, if you go to the Chan... You mm-hmm. should know where the Chan Center is. You're yes, listening to the Arts yes. Report. Come on now. Um, <laughs> if you go to the Chan, um, and then uh, you sort of follow, just like, you know, drive past the Chan mm-hmm. is basically what I'm trying to say. And that's where um, you will find the Freddie Wood Theater there. Uh, it's at, for those of you on Google Maps or whatever, it's at Wait, uh, 60... What, th- what is it? Have you told oh, us what I'm, it is? I'm holding. Oh. I, it's, I'm holding. It's so exciting. Oh, I'm this is I'm going to tell you all exciting. these details and then just, like... Spring it on spring us. Spring it on you, yeah. Okay, um, something's happening at the Freddie Wood Theater. Something's happening at the Freddie Wood Theater... Write this down, 6354 Crescent Road on UBC campus. 6354 Crescent, got it. <laughs> Adam is writing it, no. Um, and it's at 7 o'clock tonight, November 30th, Wednesday. Um, but what and is it's, it? it oh, you, are you just like dying, dying over there? I'm dying. Um, Chuck Palahniuk, um, who you may recognize as the author, probably most notably uh, of Fight Club. Fight Club. Um, but also for uh, other novels, including Choke, which mm-hmm. is a fantastic novel, um, is going to be doing a reading from his latest novel, Damned, which was released Whoa. at the beginning of September. A hugely popular novel. Everybody's very excited about it. And he is on UBC campus in half an hour to read from this new book. It's crazy. It's crazy talk. And tickets are only 15 bucks if you're a student, um, which is pretty awesome. How much for regular um, mortals? They're for $17 for regular okay. mortals um, if you d- don't have a student card or you're not a senior. Um, and, uh, <laughs> not quite yet. Yeah. Well, so, that's very exciting. I had no idea yeah. that Chuck Palahniuk was in Vancouver. He's literally yeah. meters away from he's us just, right now. Oh, he's a stone's throw <laughs> away, as they say. <laughs> stone's throw away. Well, that's very exciting. It and is. so he's doing a reading from that. And uh, do you think tickets are still available for this I thing? don't know. Yeah. Um, that's iffy. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say if you're, if you're listening now to the show and you're near... UBC campus or you're on just UBC run. campus then run. exactly just like I want to see you sprinting there <laughs> I'm going to stand at the front like with a with a, with a I don't know arts report sign or something <laughs> like, like sprint to this like bottles of water or, like a big can of Gatorade oh, wow. to like jump you know that's that's a great image thank you for leaving us with we that we can do a relay 
Nox Report Relay. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just I'm just going off on a tangent. Just going off off. Uh, wild Come there. to the Freddie Wood Theater to hear Chuck Palahniuk tonight because that's a cool thing. That's cool. All right. Yeah. Well, that officially uh, that image of uh, running an Arts Report <laughs> Relay uh, is uh, the final thought we're going to leave you with uh, on this week's Arts Report. Uh, thanks for sticking with us uh, with our um, overtime edition. Arts Report. Dun, 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 dun. Um, and join us next week for either... Don't laugh. Um, <laughs> you, need, you need one of those songs, Adam. I need a clip for that. Like, it's the Arts Report Extended Edition or like Arts Report Breaking News. Mm-hmm. I'm still going off on tangents. I'm going to stop now. You, you <laughs> He's out of control. <laughs> All right, so I'd like to thank Nick here, who's off on tangents, and Anna in the studio with me here. Uh, my name is Adam, and I will be back next... Wednesday at 5 p.m. with another exciting edition of the Arts Report. And then the week after that, we're going to have our Christmas special and we'll be roasting chestnuts over an open fire uh, here inside the studio. Yes, the fire department will have to come. Uh, So join us for that. Uh, Have a great week and check out some shows. See you next week. (laughs) 